On this episode, we'll explain what yield farming is and a new challenger in DeFi. Why Jerome Powell distanced the Fed from the digital dollar project, while Ripple elbows in on international banking standard SWIFT. And over in China, we're going to tell you about a new cross-border blockchain platform and why 5G is soon to blanket Shenzhen. Welcome to The Current Forecast, the podcast supplemental that dives into the top blockchain and emerging technology stories of the week, curated by the Forecast News editorial team. Welcome to episode 18, the last full week of June 2020. Can't believe the first half of the year is coming to a close here. I'm Angie Lau, Forecast News Editor-in-Chief, and joining me as usual is Senior Correspondent Sam Reynolds and our Forecast Insights Guru, Sam, how are you doing? Well, I would echo that sentiment. Thank God that this year is almost half over. I just can't wait to see what the second half brings. Hopefully it's been better than the first half. You know what? Let's hope for a V-shaped recovery. But, uh, you know, I think technology is going to play a big part. But politics seems to have a, a different story there. But, okay, let's talk about our first story here. And this is... Uh, Compound. It's a decentralized finance protocol, and it has dethroned MakerDAO as the top DeFi protocol in total value, locked with its newly launched Comp Token, which uh, essentially exploded to become the biggest DeFi token by market cap. All right, let's um let's distill this this story here. Something called yield farming. And it sounds really, really murky here as a financial instrument. So let's bring everyone up to speed, Sam, on the significance here. Well, for sure. So to be honest, the best analog to yield farming is a CDO or a collateralized debt obligation. So effectively, you place something in collateral. And from that collateral, you can then take out more credit. From that credit, you can buy uh, further tokens and then use that for more collateral. And then the interest you gain from this super collateral can be used then to buy things like uh, stable coins or tokenized equity, stuff like that. So it's more or less a house of cards of debt and further purchases of more assets based upon that debt. So like to be honest, it, it's a highly confusing and highly, you know, uh, questionable scheme, which really is a house of cards. And doesn't that really bring a sour taste in a lot of people's mouths? I mean, right now, when it comes to DeFi, we understand what the functionality could be, but the the problem here seems to be this highly still very unregulated uh, and and also very uh, highly leveraged financial vehicle here. What value does it have beyond just creating amount and an, an immense amount of leverage for people uh, where you know it's fine if it's on the up, but on the way down, what impact could it have? Well, what impact it'll have is that it will collapse asset prices because right now, when you buy in the compound, it's effectively a perpetual lawn on crypto assets because you bet you know that in perpetuity, you're going to have more and more price increases. To be sure, there definitely are good uses for credit in the crypto sphere. For instance, you can use it as a way to 
uh, transfer assets from the crypto space to the fiat space via a loan to fiat to go buy equities, right? Now, that is legit completely. I will have that covered actually on forecast news next week. But it's just questionable as to why you'd want to build up a perpetual mound of debt to buy more assets. I mean, I get why you want to do that, but people should understand that in the long term, this is not sustainable. After all, didn't Bitcoin eventually come out of the 2008 recession, which in part was caused by vehicles like this? It would be ironic. It would definitely be ironic. <laughs> uh, well, let's let's talk about uh, one of the central banks that are, are is still cleaning up the mess uh, of 2008, certainly trying to clean up mess of uh, 2020, uh, just like all central banks around the world. But this is Jerome Powell. He's chairman of the Federal Reserve. And he was recently asked by uh, one of the uh, one of the lawmakers on the Digital Dollar Project, and uh, he was speaking before the House Committee on Financial Services, and he was asked about the uh, a potential of the U.S. digital dollar. We saw a 5,000% increase in search volume here because Jerome Powell essentially threw cold water on, on uh, whatever momentum uh, people thought there was on the U.S. digital uh, dollar project. Tell us a little bit about uh, what the impact of his words truly meant. I wouldn't call it cold water exactly. All he was saying is that mm. the private sector won't lead the effort. So if you recall, a few weeks back, we talked to the folks behind the Accenture-led digital dollar project, and they were trying to position themselves so that they would be the ones to lead the effort. Now, obviously, there's a problem with that. The private sector does not issue currency. So Powell was saying that, look, we're going to take our time with this, and we will perhaps engage the private sector, but we will lead the effort. So to be honest, you know, all he's saying is that we won't rule out a CBDC, but it's going to be our CBDC. Well, I mean, that's that that is absolutely acceptable. It's totally understandable. But, you know, in the context of the question being asked, there is there's there's obviously a lot of work, um, white papers established, um, some some real thinking behind uh, the architecture, how it would actually function. The Federal Reserve obviously would pay play a, a, a central role here, um, even with a digital dollar project. Uh, but but in in his answer lacked specificity and it lacked a, a certain sense of of almost um understanding of the details and it was just it felt a little broad to me that you know he's almost trying to establish lane presence where it doesn't have one at the moment and in so doing um being slightly critical of whatever work oh, at at least that that's what it felt to me um the slightly uh, critical of the work uh, that has already been done by simply saying, well, we we have to understand it first I, before we do I anything think about it. I simply buying time because almost in parallel, the PBOC a few days ago also said that their DCEP would take time too, that don't expect it soon. So I, I think central bankers are certainly interested in digital dollars. We all know that. But they're just saying, don't expect it 
soon. It's a process that we have to get right when we launch it. Thus, it takes time. And uh, getting it right is uh, better than getting it fast. And that's for sure. The balance is always there. Hey, even in news. All right, let's go on to our next story where we're seeing Ripple uh, really all over the headlines right now with the Open Payments Coalition for um, really announcing its launch of PayID. So what is PayID, Sam? So if you want to transfer funds to someone, you have to know their account number, the routing number, or a SWIFT code. Or if you're going to transfer funds via crypto, usually you have to have the person's address or QR code. All are very complex and not really easy. So with PayID, which is a consortium of companies backed by Ripple, they are hoping to provide a more simple email-like address instead. So instead of having someone's, you know, long, unwieldy QR code or uh, wallet ID or whatever, it's simply first name, then a symbol like at, and then their uh, partner institution, right? So that way you'll have to memorize all of this and it's a lot easier. Easy is the name of the game, especially when it comes to cross-border. Uh, I'm still waiting for that check to clear. <laughs> but Sam, yours is good. I, I promise it's <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, as we wrap up, let's talk about China here. The Greater Bay Area, this is something that incorporates mainland China, Hong Kong, and Macau. It's essentially trying to grow the footprint and it's very ambitious because obviously it has three vastly different legal and regulatory systems that have long posed obstacles to cross-border transactions, even though they philosophically and nationally uh, are, in in China's view, one and the same. Um, and so this is an interesting initiative that China Guangfa Bank is launching. It's the first cross-border blockchain-based financial system that's been launched in China's Greater Bay Area. And that that really helps actually create a foundation where the region can, can leverage its footprint uh, in a bigger way than what it presently has, and all using blockchain. That's right. So you have three very distinct legal systems and also three different economies too. You have Hong Kong, a big port and the heart of capital. You have Macau, which is a hospitality uh, you know, hub, and Shenzhen, which is the world's factory. So obviously, a relationship has to go through this entire hub. But with these three different legal systems, that's complicated. So as it stands right now, a factory in Shenzhen might have trouble getting credit from a bank in Hong Kong to expand operations or to do something like perhaps uh, rent a ballroom over in Macau just because of the lack of compatibility and the different systems. So with blockchain, you can have an open ledger that shows all parties that, okay, this person has a order for this many whatever, which means that we can extend credit based upon revenue coming to the factory. And in turn, that credit can be used to pay for a ballroom in Macau. So you take what was once a very fragmented yet naturally uh, you know, close and compatible system and turn it into something that is more unified 
because of these open ledgers where all parties can inspect the data and trust the data and you know work together to build bridges and to conduct trade. Well, I mean, to your point, it is it is a, a technology of trust. It's the immutability and the transparency that that is critical. But it really underscores you know, why people want to work together. Everybody's on the same page. It's just that current systems aren't necessarily quite there. Whereas this blockchain cross-border system uh, certainly is one critical step to making sure that not only the regions are politically and economically aligned, but also the infrastructure is there to make sure it's seamless and frictionless. Okay. And uh, speaking of frictionless, 5G coming to town, uh, it's being installed in Shenzhen as we speak. Bases are being installed across the city. And Shenzhen is likely going to become the first city in China to have high-quality, full-coverage 5G network. That's 17,000 new 5G bases that will be laid out in Shenzhen by the end of August this year. That's incredible. Well, it certainly is, right? So, of course, you know, this will be great for those with a 5G handsets. But more importantly, there is a huge infrastructure play that is possible now because smart cities create a lot of data. And before, all those sensors around the smart city were constrained by the bandwidth. So that means that they were constrained by the amount of data they could send back to home base. So, for instance, with 5G, that increased bandwidth means that you can have now 4K or even 8K cameras monitoring a certain city block. So you can see things you know, in uh, perfect clarity versus a compressed image. Or things like uh, you know, smart cars, they now have that increased bandwidth so they can send back to home base more and more details about uh, their you know, health, uh, their usage, that kind of stuff. So an urban planner now has a lot more data you know, at their fingertips that can be used to do things like you know, plot the next uh, upgrade to a subway or you know, just get insights on how people in their city go about their daily lives. Yeah, th those lives are, are going to be sped up to be sure. And just to clarify, 17,000 new 5G bases. So that would bring the total of to 45,000 new 5G bases in Shenzhen. But Shenzhen could, you know, it's already a tech hub in China uh, to be the first leading 5G enabled uh, smart city, I guess, in Shenzhen. This also is a playground, uh, a, a real life uh, working ecosystem in which the entrepreneurs that are and founders and VCs that are currently working and living and investing in the city of Shenzhen would be able to really flesh out in detail, you know, what a new, what what business opportunities might be uh, new 5G ways of uh, transforming business logic even. So I think in in terms of what impact it could have, it's, it's interesting that Shenzhen was chosen to be the first in China. And it goes back to the Chinese model of the public and private uh, working together. So before we talked about how Beijing sees blockchain as a key technology for the future, and it you know allows cities to give out the right grants to build these incubators, build these hubs. 
so that you know an entrepreneur or a researcher is not constrained by the thought of okay, how will I commercialize this immediately to do his work? So this way you have that support and you have the long-term play of creating technology versus the short-term play of let's create something that's profitable immediately. Well, I predict a, a fast ferry ride from Hong Kong to <laughs> uh, Shenzhen in our future, Sam. I, I think we might kind of have to do that and check things out for ourselves uh, here at Forecast News. We've got to keep everybody apprised as to what's going on. Yeah, I've taken it before. And I took that in 2015, and it was full of people smoking the whole time. And oh, gross. <laughs> it was the sketchiest thing. I thought, oh, my God. All right. Rest in peace, Sam. If one wave hits this thing, we're all dead. So uh, I might pass okay, you know that what? offer, unless it's changed since then. You know what? Why don't we just take a private car? We could take a private car. It's fine, yeah. Sam. I know you're a little bougie like that, so that's yeah. cool. <laughs> All right. What a busy week and what a, whew, it's been a heck of a first half of the year. Um, but if uh, the second half of the year, uh, you know, is, is shaping up to be uh, even more interesting, I think, um, from our point of view here in Asia. So Sam, as usual, thank you so much for your contributions this week to the for- current forecast. And thank you everyone for joining us on this latest episode. I'm Angie Lau, editor in chief of Forecast News. Until the next time.